The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. <clears throat> Today is the 6th of August 2019, Hiroshima Day. And we're going to take up um, two very short uh, stories uh, from The Hidden Lamp. This is this great compendium of, of stories about women um, in Buddhism. And these, these two stories come from um, two, two important figures of the 20th century. Um, uh, the first one is called Deepa Ma's Fearless Daughters and the other one is called Anne Aitken's Get On and Go. And just a little bit, uh, before we get to the stories themselves, a little bit about, about these two women. Deepa Ma um, was born into an Indian Buddhist family. Her dates are 1911 to, to uh, 1989. She married when she was just 12 years old and moved to Burma. And after her husband and her youngest child died, um, she, she was um, grief-stricken and uh, but eventually found her way to practicing with a Burmese teacher, Anagarika Monindra. And she had a um, powerful awakening experience when she was 53. Um, she moved to Calcutta in 1968 and she taught out of her tiny um, apartment. Um, one, I think it was a one-room apartment. Um, and Twice she came to America in the 80s, 1980 and 1984, uh, to teach at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, um, on the East Coast. And um, then the other, other person here is Anne Aiken. Anne Aiken, um, her dates. Um, actually, she was born the same year as Deepa Ma in 1911, and she lived to 1994. She co-founded uh, Kokoan Zendo in Hawaii um, in 1959 with her husband, Zen teacher Robert Aitken, and then they later co-founded the Maui Zendo and established the Diamond Sangha. Uh, one of the significant Zen lineages of the West and, and very closely related to our own. Uh, she studied with uh, Soen Nakagawa Roshi, Yasutani Roshi and Yamada Roshi. And um, she was never formally um, a teacher, but she was um, a great inspiration and support to uh, generations of Zen students in the Diamond Sangha um, and particularly to women. So, um, as I said, these these two two stories are quite brief, but they can they sort of will hopefully set set some themes for for the talk. 
And in this book, um, it, each, each part, each chapter comes in three parts. There's a story, some of them more koan-like, some of them less, these two aren't, aren't so much like koans. And then the, there's a, a reflection from, from a, um, a woman teacher, and then there are some little questions posed at the end uh, by the editors of the book um, that, that are aim to kind of draw out various aspects of the stories. <clears throat> and here's, the, here's our first one, which has to do with Deepa Ma. Deepa Ma was on an aeroplane with a woman student. It was very turbulent, and the woman screamed. Deepa Ma was sitting across the aisle and took her hand and held it. Then she whispered, the daughters of the Buddha are fearless. Um, so that's that's the the um, that's our that's our story, and the um, person giving the reflection on this particular story is Amita Schmidt. Just a, a little bit about her. She is the author of a book, um, actually one that we've used in Taisho before, about Deepa Ma, Deepa Ma, the life and legacy of a Buddhist master. Um, Amita is a psychotherapist in Hawaii and specializes in trauma and anxiety. And she also leads retreats in Vipassana and um, both the Vipassana and the Advaita tradition. So she sees, she says, makes some comments about um, about the story. Um, she says, Deepa Ma is emphasizing the fearlessness needed on this path of the Dharma. To know the truth, one must be fearless no matter what is happening. Whether there is airplane turbulence or physical injury, you ca can you have a heart and mind that are unshakable? Waking up is not a part-time job for the faint-hearted. It is the intention to meet every moment continually without flinching. As a daughter of the Buddha, you are an example to all beings of the willingness to face what is right now without fear or argument. Whether you're a, a daughter or a son of the Buddha, this is, this is really what we're called to do as practitioners, to find, to find um, to be able to keep an even keel um, through whatever turbulence we are we encounter in our lives, and uh, this this um, story jumped little story jumped out at me um, uh, in the context of the of this discussions we've been having the study we've been doing on the climate crisis. Uh, we really, really have this sense that we're entering into um, a time of great uncertainty, um, not only for the whole of the human race, but for, for all sentient beings. A time of turbulence and um, 
real, real um, large scale change. Um, so Comitant is put in terms of moving from the stability of the Holocene um, archaeological pe period into the into the the um, turbulence and the and the um, um, instability of the anthrop Anthropocene. When we're we're now experiencing, we can say the ripening of our of our karma as human beings in terms of how we've been um, treating our earth. Amita Schmidt goes on to tell a story of her own. A few months ago, I had a lesson in being a fearless daughter of the Buddha. On a balmy, sunny morning, I decided to go out for a solo swim in the ocean in Hawaii, where I live. There were some colorful fish where I was swimming, and I became preoccupied with following some of them. Unfortunately, I didn't notice until it was too late that I had drifted out with an ocean current about a mile from the shore. To make matters worse, a strong wind suddenly arose, and as I tried to swim to shore, the white caps pushed me back for every stroke I took. When I realized I was a long way out, alone, in shark territory, and unable to make much progress against the wind, I had a moment of panic. It was similar to the scream of Deepama's student on the, on the aeroplane. But then my Dharma practice kicked in. It was as if the power of my intention from years of practice came forward on its own to help. It labeled the feeling. This is panic. It's just panic. Panic is not going to help you. Don't believe panic. Then my daughter of the Buddha mind said, just do what you can do. Stay focused on right now, one thing at a time. Start with one kick and one arm movement at a time. You can do that. Don't worry about anything else. I put a concentrated focus on the body and stayed out of the mind. I paid attention to the movement of my arms in the swimming motion, one breath at a time, and the kicking of my legs. I noticed that despite the wind, I was able to move a tiny bit forward with each stroke. I focused on the small amount of forward motion, rather than the feeling of being pushed back. A spontaneous resolve arose to not give up, no matter how long it took. This predictive dharma of the present moment along with the resolve of the Buddha, eventually brought me back, exhausted, to shore. So, um, I think we can, we can take quite a bit from this description, we can see where she, what she's pointing at, that um, it's easy, it's easy to um, get into a panic um, about what's going on in our in the world, and we can become we can come in that panic, that fear, anxiety. We can we can get gripped. We can become gripped by assumptions about how things are going to turn out. We can we can feel very powerless. Um, 
another way sometimes that people will deal with that sense of powerlessness or vulnerability will be looking for someone else to blame or we can we can take refuge in very strong opinions about um, what's right and what's wrong which we can then cling to us cling to and give us some sense of some some certainty and that that um, seeking uh, for for certainty for um, what is clearly right and wrong um, can even lead to a kind of um, extremism in us extreme thinking extreme emotions <coughs> but if um, more than ever what's really needed um, as we we face um, uncertain times, unstable times, is, um, is a steady mind that can be open to what is happening, to, that can be honest about what's going on, but at the same time not get, get um, easily phased, thrown off balance. She says, whether we are experiencing a bumpy flight, a difficult ocean swim, or a turbulent life, our practice is the same. We are given the chance to meet this moment with openness and fearlessness. It doesn't matter how long it takes or how much the wind pushes us back. If there is a willingness not to give up and a resolve to keep taking that one next step, then it is inevitable that each one of us will find lasting freedom. To keep taking those small steps, um, her other little story. Maybe say it has a um, related. theme, even, sh even shorter than, than the first one. Anne Aitken was a student of Master Yamada Cohen. One day he asked her, what do you think of death? She replied, why, it's like when a bus stops before you, you get on and go. It's like a bus stops, when a bus stops before you, you get on and go. The thing about, the thing about death is that um, all our, all our, uh, our reading, our theories, our beliefs, all, all, all of that in the face of, uh, of death are, are just fall away, are, are just don't have any, any, any kind of purchase.
because we 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 can't know what what is going to unfold in in our death we don't know where we're going that's why this image of the bus is so great the bus the bus you're standing there at the side of the road the bus comes up and you get on and go you don't know where you're going we could take this story also to be a story for how we live not just not just um, how we die we really don't and in many ways know where life is taking us um, how things will turn out we don't know we, we can look at look at all the the evidence around climate change and and make predictions but um, until it actually happens that's what they are just predictions I used to have um, for quite a few years a recurring dream um, that I was that was that I was on a bus going somewhere but when I got to my stop the bus didn't stop but kept going and I couldn't get off and I get my guess is that this 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 dream was um, uh, picturing my own fears of fear of life longing maybe to to um, to be able to to control where things were taking me It's just next part of the Taisha I wanted to sort of take up um, a case study that um, um, relates to our, um, our, our climate change discussions and particularly to our um, declaration of a climate emergency that that the trustees um, made recently after we just talked about it as a sangha and agreed that it was something we wanted to do and um, some some time around that 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 declaration um, I had a talk with um, Bante Yasala some of you know as the She's the abbess of, of a monastery up in Kerikeri. She's also known as Enshulsanim. She's she's um, been here, I don't know, maybe 20 years, but um, came, um, was born and grew up in Korea and uh, trained in, in Korean Son monasteries. And um, Ante Asala suggested that um, 
our Sangha might like to participate in a, a pilgrimage that she's organising to um, Bodhgaya in early February next year. And uh, she, she said, suggested that we could we could go with uh, members of our sangha could go with members of her sangha to stay in a in a temple that she has a connection to in Bodhgaya, and then from there go on a tour in a bus around the other um, main uh, Buddhist pilgrimage sites, and. Um, Rich and I were both interested in this because it's something that for a long time we've, we've wanted to do. We wanted to make that, that pilgrimage to India. And so I, I wrote up a little note to put in in the, in the uh, uh, Friday email, but then realized that um, I was feeling amb really ambivalent about it because um, in the light of having made Sangha having made a climate emergency declaration, how did that? How did making a big um, plane trip um, sort of square with that? And so it seemed like a perfect um, a perfect way to explore the meaning of um, having made the de declaration, which is one of the things that's on the agenda for the next trust meeting, since they've got this these instructions from the Sangha to, to, to pursue this and to keep going and making it making it something real and solid within our within our Sangha. Um, for maybe maybe ten years or so um, I haven't been able to bring myself to take take planes for holidays, to fly somewhere for a holiday. And this, this really came about after um, I'd been to both um, Vanuatu and, and Rangaratonga and seen the coral reefs in both those places. And in Vanuatu also seen an area of, of coral which had been through a bleaching um, event, in other words a large die-off of the coral because of a particularly warm year that that had occurred in this on on in Tana, the, this island that we were on, um, some some years before, one of the hottest years on record at that point. And this area is particularly warm because it's it's warmed also by the volcanic activity that's right there, that where the beach is. So anyway, I'd seen this and and uh, and I realised that these beautiful coral reefs were. Um, were being threatened because of rising global temperatures and uh, not to mention ocean acidification and that that tra air travel contributed to those rising temperatures and it seemed a kind of um, contradiction to be to be going and, and seeing these these beautiful stunningly beautiful coral reefs and and the fish life in them um, but at the same time contributing to their destruction. So um, it hasn't stopped me going flying for other reasons, but it seemed one area where, um, which was pretty easy to, to um, um, just not, not go fly to holidays anymore. 
Um, you know, how does the pilgrimage relate to that? That was a question that, that, that came up. So it's, it's, you could say it's more than a holiday, but um, it could certainly be described as, as kind of discretionary travel. It's not something that um, is, is uh, absolutely necessary. So it seemed important to really look into um, the effects of, of, of flying and consider how that fits with, with going on pilgrimage. Whether, it, whether it, whether it's a contradiction of the whole purpose of going on pilgrimage, which is to is to is to do more than go and see sites, but really to be able to be to um, go on a, on a on some kind of a spiritual journey. So um, since I had that that that, that hesitation of of um, not not being ready to kind of announce this to the sangha, and it seemed to me it'd be a good idea to to take along to the trustees for them to discuss, but I also wanted just to, to bring it up in 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 Taisho as well. And in the process of of, of looking into it. Um, uh, really, what I what I came to was that it's not a black and white, completely black and white thing. You can't say say um, with absolute certainty that that um, it's wrong to go or that it's right to go to fly. Um, you can look into it and. Um, uh, just as I was doing that, in fact, um, somebody posted something on our, our Dharma Rain uh, Facebook page, which um, set out the most effective individual steps to tackle climate change, and among them was tr flying less. And the the article this appeared in um, phys.org, which is like a, a physics website that looks into cl climate issues, among other things. The four actions that that most substantially decrease an individual's carbon footprint are eating a plant-based diet, avoiding air travel, living car-free, and having smaller families. Um, so it was it was right up in the in in the top of the list there. Um, also around around this last week or so, I I saw the news about. Um, um, Greta Thunberg um, uh, is going to. She's going to ca catch a yacht from Europe to America to go to a, um, a conference, and um, she has actually generated. She's um, helped, been part of um, generating a new word um, in Swedish, which translates into English as flight shame, and. Um, in Sweden, the, the amount of train travel has gone up considerably, and it is inspiring to see her example and her willingness to undergo hardship, probably seasickness, certainly um, uh, all kinds of of, of uh, 
weather and ups and downs, turbulence, we could say, to cross from Europe to, to America for this, um, this conference. And her doing so gives, gives, um, gives her work a kind of moral force. It's, it is inspiring and, and, uh, and it, it has weight to it. So this is one factor to consider. Um, but but um, just sort of by chance, in, in looking into this, this article about these, these four top um, individuals' um, best steps for tackling one's personal um, emissions, right next to it, and this was probably actually intended by the, the editors of this, of this site, there was another one, another article, um, from some time ago, headed up, um, emphasizing individual solutions to big issues can reduce support for government efforts. And um, this other article um, went into some research which has, has been done about, um, in uh, done in Japan by a, by a, a researcher called Seth Werfel, um, and he did this research following the shutdown of the Fukushima power plant. And after that, the Japanese government initiated um, uh, a campaign to get people to save electricity in order, in order to lower demand on the remaining um, network, I guess, in, in Japan. And um, what, what he found was that, that the more people said they curbed the energy use on the, uh, their own, the less they supported government um, actions, such as putting a tax on carbon emissions. And um, he thought this was somewhat um, counterintuitive because you would expect the people who, who are making the personal sacrifices would be the ones who would also support government action. Um, but in fact, what he seemed, the, the survey seemed to be saying was that um, when people took the survey, they felt like they were doing a lot and that the, the government shouldn't make them do more. Um, and, we, and we know that, that um, for, for uh, a lot of the change that's needed in relation to climate change, um, the individual actions are, are um, not sufficient. And if we focus too much on, on just individual people changing their actions, then um, Although that person, the person who's taken that 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 um, uh, step of reducing their own emissions lowers their personal emissions, it doesn't necessarily mean that overall emissions will be much changed at all. The plane still flies, and the carbon emissions are divided up by the people on the plane. They just they're just all responsible for a bit more. The ones who actually do fly. So 
Um, most people agree that to get major reductions in, in, the, the, in, in the amount of flying that happens, prices have to rise significantly and um, that takes collective action at government level. Um, we also talked in one of our sessions, the earlier sessions when we kicked off this, this um, program of looking into climate change, that um, the, the um, commercial aviation industry is, is quite actually quite a small proportion of uh, global emissions, just 2.5 percent. Whereas, whereas um, the, the aviation associated with the military is, is, is um, enormous. I think it was Celestina who mentioned um, in her talk that, that 10 minutes of a B-52 is equal to about a year's car, average car use for a year. So it's huge amounts of emissions that aren't even accounted for. And so some kind of um, work on um, militarization is, is desperately needed here. And it's possible you could say that, that too much emphasis on our own individual actions could, could mean that's all we do and that the, the collective action um, may, may be neglected. Another piece of research in, in the same vein was, um, was people feeling after, church, after going to church tipping less because assuming, sort of assuming that because they feel they feel more virtuous and don't feel like they have to um, reach out to others in the same way. Another factor that I think is an important one here is um, if we do, and this relates to the, the, the feeling, the kind of feeling virtuous thing, um, if we, if we do something just because we think we should, then um, there may eventually be a kind of hidden backlash of some kind. Um, Greta Thunberg actually said in commenting on her decision to go by boat across the Atlantic, she said, I don't say people shouldn't fly. It should just be easier to be zero carbon. So to see, see the, the, all our structures, the way we're set up, um, the, the way things are run, there's this, there's, it makes it hard for people to make individual choices that are um, going to uh, be helpful for the, for the um, climate change. And so we may need to be strategic to, to um, can't necessarily do everything at all at once or, or um, so we, we have to kind of choose where, where we can be most effective and um, 
perhaps not be be so um, extreme in um, trying to be pure in a in a world where it's it's um, in so many ways we're, we're compromised. Um, a little bit of a, um, from a from an interview that done by uh, Professor Jim Bendel. Um, some of you may know him. That he runs he runs a um, a kind of movement called Deep Adaptation. And um, in this in this post that he made just recently, he he's talking to a climate scientist. Um, from uh, Lund University, Dr. Wolf, Wolfgang Nor, and um, he somebody. This is somebody who'd been working in the in the climate change um, field for for decades, and he he was wanting to to um, t discuss with Jim Bendel how he could, and other scientists like him could. Um, Get the world out, word out about about what's happening right now in terms of um, in, impacts on nature, and um, have be more effective than than the science world has been up to now. And Jim Bendel asks him the question: What do you think scientists could learn from activists like Extinction Rebellion? In what might, ways might you and they get involved? And he replies, until very recently, I thought that no one, really no one, is taking the problem of climate change seriously. There are such endless high risk, possibly low probability, but we don't know, impacts. The problem needs a response of colossal proportions. With the new generation of climate protesters like Extinction Rebellion, that has changed. What I have realized only recently is that there is nothing much you can do at the individual personal level, like saving energy, flying less and so on. The machinery of industrial society will always make sure your efforts are in vain. What is needed is action at the political and the decision-making level. This is something I have learned from these activists. I'm not an activist by nature. So I am reluctant to, to make that step, but I believe it is necessary. My impression is that, that this attitude that I describe for myself here is quite common among scientists, and I think also common among meditators. I think most of us are uh, probably temperamentally fairly, fairly introverted, and, and it may not come naturally to us to, to get active in the way that uh, members of of Extinction Rebellion. Uh, he says, my attitude, my, uh, what is happening now is that Extinction Rebellion and similar protest movements increasingly seize the public discourse on climate change and leave much of the scientific community behind, in particular the IPCC. And that is a good thing because we need to move from the current paradigm. This should answer your second question, moving the public discourse from the problem identification mode to problem confrontation mode. 
We need a sober, grown-up look at all the risks climate change entails. No doomsaying, no preaching, no exaggeration in order to convince others, but also no shying away from speaking out things that are painful. And to find that middle ground is exactly what a collaboration between climate scientists and the new protest movement could achieve. So uh, brings us back to how to our um, title of of um, fearlessness and faith. Um, now two stories, um, having having the courage to really face up to what is going on and um, also to have courage to look at our own um, attachments and our own avoidance of the issues. Uh, one of the things in, str in struggling with this issue over the, over the flying when um, is also um, uh, wanting to go to, to India, want, do, having wanted to do this for a long time, um, it wasn't so much going to India or not um, that, that came up for me, though that was there too, but realizing that to give up flying was to give up an idea about, about being able to travel and having to recognize that I might not have the same uh, freedom as my parents had in their retirement to travel that um, I, I wouldn't be able to bring myself to travel in the way that they did in, their, in, in the, the younger part of their, their retirement. And it's these kinds of un, maybe unconscious expectations that we have that um, it's, it's so important that we, that we look at them and and realize the way that we 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 cling to uh, a certain idea about how we 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 should live or what what kind of life we should have of ease and comfort and and freedom of, of movement And returning, returning to to um, our, our second story, the one about um, about Anne Aitken and the death, and uh, getting the bus coming and just getting on and going. Um, to find to find the faith to. Um, be okay with not knowing where this bus is going and being being having the willingness just to get on and go which is really having the faith in our own uh, ability to to face whatever needs to be faced as this as, as this crisis unfolds and to do what needs to be done to find our own, to find our own our calling in the midst of this issue. We can't do everything, but each of us can can do something, and to take those those small steps or those small 
um, strokes of the, of, uh, of the swimmer um, swimming against the current. And just to finish off with a little bit from an article uh, by um, Roshi Sunyana Grave, uh, one of my, my teachers, Dharma sisters, teacher in Vermont. And um, she, she starts this article, which is on, on ecology and Zen, um, with a, t a quote from Zen master Dogen. And this is from the Mountains and Rivers Sutra that we're going to be looking at, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. So Master Dogen says, if you yourself, who are the valley streams and mountains, cannot develop the power which illuminates the true reality of the mountains and valley streams, who else is going to be able to convince you that you and the streams and mountains are one and the same? She says, perhaps it is part of being human to question who and what we are. Unfortunately, because we rely almost exclusively on our senses, the harder we look, the more we misinterpret what we see. We believe on the one hand that we are in a significant dot in the universe, separate from all other humans, much less the natural world. But we also believe that we are the most highly evolved organism in creation, entitled to use whatever we can grasp for our own ends. Both of these statements are untrue. We're not completely insignificant dots in a, in a vast and, and uh, unfriendly universe. And nor are we the pinnacle of evolution, entitled to use whatever we, we like for of the world's resources, as, as um, it says in Genesis. The, the Buddhist view is a is, um, different one completely. In fact, um, Sunyana goes on. Roshi, Sunyana Roshi goes on to to say, uh, in terms of their psycho-spiritual development, people stand about midway between Buddhas and amoebas. <laughs> this is something that Roshi Kaplow used to say, and it's very liberating in a way to to realize that we we human beings are. Uh, most of us about you know halfway along the journey to Buddhahood, halfway between Buddhas and Mipas. So that's in, from the relative point of view. That's that's where we are in our development. But on of course, from the absolute point of view, as she also says, people, Buddhas, amoebas, dogs, streams, and mountains are one and the same. So across all of, of the surface of this planet, we're all um, one, equal. Not only spatially either, we can think also in terms of time. Um, Robert McFarlane, who, who wrote uh, Underland, says, to see ourselves as a web of gift, inheritance and legacy, stretching over millions of years past and millions to come bringing us to consider what we are leaving behind for the epoch and beings that will follow us. And maybe this view, this, this, this way of thinking of ourselves as, as having received all these gifts from, from the past, say from our, from our human and non-human tupuna, 
and how we're going to pass those gifts on to those who come after us. Mokupuna. We, if we look at it from this big perspective, um, how we how we act and choices we make, it may become clearer what what is the right thing for us to do right now, how to respond, to fly or not to fly, what we eat, how we how we get around. I think we'll um, have a little bit more material, but um, we've run out of time, so we'll just stop there and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to Endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.